The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Key Questions About Latest Diagnostic and Therapeutic Advances in Desmoid Tumors. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YNZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Find out how much you know about optimal management of desmoid tumors through a simple three-step process in the self-assessment activity comprising five question modules. First, answer the baseline question to evaluate your knowledge and skills. Next, review the supporting evidence shared by Drs. Ravine Rattan and Christina Rowland. Finally, answer the question again to demonstrate what you've learned. Each correct answer automatically counts toward post-test completion which means that getting your CME credit is fast and easy. Desmoid tumors or desmoid fibromatosis are a rare type of tumor with an annual incidence of 0.2 to 0.4 per 100,000 person years. This translates into about 1,000 people being diagnosed in the United States every year and about 3,000 people per year in Europe. The majority of desmoid tumors are sporadic, but 5% to 10% of tumors are associated with FAP or familial adenomatous polyposis in the context of Gardner syndrome. These people usually develop uh, desmoid tumors after diagnosis and after the treatment of colonic polyposis. Although the exact mechanism of tumor genesis for desmoid tumors is still being evaluated, 85% of desmoid tumors harbor a somatic mutation in CTNNB1 gene, which encodes the beta-catenin protein. APC loss, which is the mutation of FAP-associated desmoid tumors, also leads to desmoid tumor development. Both APC and CTNNB1 are mediators of the Wnt signaling pathway, and alterations lead to uncontrolled proliferation of fibroblasts and desmoid tumors. Desmoid tumors can occur anywhere in the body, but are most prevalent in the abdominal wall, the lower extremity, and the scapular girdle. Desmoid tumors have a strong female predominance of three to one, possibly due to the association with the estrogen receptor expression on many desmoid tumors. Although most commonly unifocal within the same site, desmoid tumors can be multifocal, particularly in the extremities. As you can see in the MRI on the left, the hypervascular desmoid tumor located in the medial thigh, whereas on the right, you can see an MRI of the hand with two multifocal desmoid tumors that are hypervascular on MRI. Previously, the management of desmoid tumors centered around wide surgical resection with at least a two centimeters of grossly negative margins. However, over the last decade, the management of desmoid tumors has evolved significantly to where surgery is no longer the primary or only curative treatment for desmoid tumors, particularly for patients with localized disease. In addition, unnecessary surgery can be harmful as resection of these large tumors often results in significant soft tissue defects with permanent disability and morbidity. Today, there are numerous treatment strategies for desmoid tumors as shown on this slide. Throughout the lecture today, as well as the following case presentations, we'll review the data and the indications for many of these treatment options of this rare disease. As I mentioned, the management of desmoid tumors has really changed over the last decade, and this resulted in 2020, the Desmoid Tumor Working Group generating a consensus statement defining the best practices and treatment recommendations for patients with desmoid tumors. 
The diagnosis of desmoid tumor starts with a core needle biopsy, and the frontline approach after the diagnosis of a desmoid tumor is generally active surveillance, particularly for patients that are asymptomatic. As I will outline in subsequent slides, the majority of patients are able to be treated with active surveillance and will have either stabilization of their desmoids or even spontaneous tumor regression. And this is usually happens within the first one to two years. For those that do develop pro progression, local and systemic therapy options as outlined in the bottom of this slide include medical therapy, radiotherapy, cryotherapy, as well as surgery in order to manage the localized disease. Previously, wide resection was used for the management of desmoid tumors primarily. As shown in the study by Ballo et al. of 189 desmoid tumor patients treated with surgery, most patients experienced exceptional overall survival with a five-year overall survival of 96%. Unfortunately, however, up to 30% of patients develop a local relapse even after wide margin negative surgery, highlighting the need for additional therapies. Similarly, 13 years later, the group from Milan demonstrated similar survival outcomes, but as you can see from the picture on the right, although the survival is still excellent, the quality of life associated with this significant surgery required to resect these tumors can be permanent and significant. So why do we consider active surveillance? As I mentioned, by definition, desmoid tumors are a locally invasive, non-metastasizing fibroblastic proliferation with a variable clinical course, but are generally a local-only problem. And although about 30% of patients develop a local recurrence after complete surgical resection, this really varies based on tumor location, tumor size, as well as patient age. As shown in the graph on the right, patients with abdominal wall desmoid tumors tend to recur less frequently, whereas those located within the extremity are more likely to recur after surgery. And this is important for determining the best treatment management. This study by the French sarcoma group was one of the first studies to evaluate patients treated with active surveillance or initial observation compared to those treated with surgery. For this study, patients were categorized as having desmoid tumors located either in a favorable location, which was defined as abdominal wall, mesenteric, breast, or lower limb, or an unfavorable location, which were defined as those within the head and neck, chest wall, or upper limb. And what they found was that patients with desmoid tumors treated in a favorable location, as shown in the top graph, the recurrence-free survival was similar between those that were undergoing surgery versus those that were treated with initial observation, with 30% of patients recurring after surgery and approximately 37 that progressed after active surveillance with only 20% of those actually requiring active treatment. In the unfavorable location though, of the patients treated with surgery, 75% developed a local recurrence after surgery, whereas those treated with active surveillance or watch and wait, only 48% of those progressed after this treatment strategy with only 30% of those requiring treatment, uh, demonstrating that perhaps in this patient population, surgery is harmful. If we look at the natural history of patients being managed with active surveillance, what you can see is that the majority of patients that need treatment for their desmoid tumors do so within the first one to two years after diagnosis. In this study of 147 patients treated with active surveillance, 33% of patients needed a treatment switch within the first year, most often to medical therapy. 
Interestingly, though, only an additional 8% of patients had a change in their treatment between years one and two, uh, highlighting that the majority of times when there needs to be a change in treatment, this happens relatively quickly in the desmoid uh, tumor course. And what is even more interesting about desmoid tumors is that some treated with active surveillance will even develop spontaneous regression. This is a patient of mine that had a history of retroperitoneal liposarcoma treated in 2019. Two years later, as he was undergoing active surveillance for his liposarcoma, he was noted to have this haziness within the mesentery uh, shown in the film on the left with the arrow, which was biopsied and consistent with a desmoid tumor. As he was asymptomatic, he underwent active surveillance, and after 18 months, as you can see on the CT scan on the right, the area of the desmoid tumor has almost completely resolved. And this is not an uncommon phenomenon and happens for many desmoid tumor patients. So some important questions to ask when identifying patients who will benefit from active surveillance, and especially those who will develop spontaneous regression are, how often does this happen? How long does it take? And who does this work for? And we'll sort of go through this in the remaining slides in my talk. So the, really the first prospective study to demonstrate the concept of spontaneous regression in desmoid fibromatosis really came from this uh, serafinib randomized study. And although I will not go over the data for the serafinib study, as this will be covered later on by my colleague, Dr. Rattan, what I would like to show you is in patients treated in the placebo arm of this trial, approximately 25% of patients had a radiographic regression defined by rhesus as shown in the orange graph on the left, with active surveillance at a medium of about nine months, indicating that many patients, even those that have progressing desmoids will eventually develop spontaneous regression if they are given time. This has been further demonstrated in two prospective studies out of Italy and the Netherlands, evaluating active surveillance in asymptomatic desmoid tumors. This Italian study of 108 patients managed with active surveillance, 25% developed spontaneous regression as shown in the waterfall plot with a proportion of them developing a complete radiographic response. Interestingly, an additional 6% of patients had spontaneous progression as shown in the light blue bars on the left after confirmed radiographic pro progression and some of them even developing complete radiographic responses, highlighting that even if patients have some progression and remain asymptomatic, it is still safe to continue active surveillance for some period of time, as a proportion of those patients will eventually develop spontaneous regression. In the Dutch graffiti trial, this was a similar study in which 105 patients with a median age of 37 years and a median tumor size of 4.1 centimeters were followed for 34 months for the natural history of their desmoid tumors. Similar results were seen whereby progression-free survival at three years was 58%, and the majority of patients that were going to progress did so within the first two years, supporting some of the earlier retrospective data that we had seen from the French sarcoma group. Finally, if we look at the spontaneous regression data side-by-side -side from the Italian group and the Dutch graffiti trial, what you can see in the waterfall plot as well in the left, as well as the spider plot on the right, is that although some patients will develop spontaneous regression, initially, a proportion of patients may develop progression at first and then develop spontaneous regression later on, again, highlighting that continuing active surveillance for asymptomatic patients is reasonable as many will eventually spontaneously regress. So the summary and key takeaways for the first portion of the talk is that active surveillance should be the primary approach to sporadic asymptomatic desmoid tumors, 
since as many as 50% of patients can experience spontaneous regression in the medium time of two to three years. Extremity location, large tumor size, and the type of beta-catenin mutation are strongly linked and associated with adverse outcomes. Extra care should be taken in these less favorable locations, such as head and neck and intra-abdominal locations, since progression may result in life-threatening symptoms. We will talk in the remainder of the slides about the availability of new agents with higher efficacy and less adverse events that may change the treatment landscape of these tumors. Finally, I want to just highlight one other type of active therapy that can be used uh, for the treatment of desmoid tumors, which is cryotherapy. So cryotherapy uses argon and helium gas that passes through a thin 14 to 17 gauge probe to induce rapid freezing and thawing of tissue. Gas expansion occurs in a small chamber inside the distal end of the cryoprobe, and the surface of the ice ball corresponds to the zero degrees Celsius isotherm, and the lethal isotherm rests a few millimeters inside the ice ball. Thus, a minimum of a five millimeter safety margin is needed to encompass the tumor within the negative 20 to negative 40 degree Celsius uh, lethal isotherm. Currently, this is the only prospective study evaluating cryotherapy for the treatment of desmoid tumors published by Kurtz et al. in 2021. As shown in the graph on the right, the study did meet its primary endpoint of 86% of non-progressive disease within 12 months. The quality of life data showed on the left demonstrates that the majority of patients had reduced pain after their cryotherapy, supporting further investigation of this treatment modality. It should be noted, however, that 30% of patients in this study did develop a grade 3 toxicity, including pain flares, skin burns, edema, or nerve injury, so further study is needed to make this treatment more routinely applicable, but there are encouraging long-term data for disease control. In this second portion uh, of our discussion, we're going to be discussing the active systemic therapies that are available for desmoids. This has been an area where a lot of progress has been made in the last five to 10 years and there's a lot to review. Briefly, I'll just mention some of what I'll call legacy therapies. These are treatments that have been used for 20 or 30 years and have often been integrated into previous uh, guidelines regarding the management of desmoids, but have recently been de-emphasized. Tamoxifen and other hormonal agents were previously used uh, based on observations that patients that were pregnant may have had rapidly progressive desmoids um, and are no longer recommended in current guidelines. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents uh, have also been used uh, for patients, and this is based on case reports that showed response to therapy when patients were treated with NSAIDs for other indications. Uh, and these are still used in some cases primarily to control pain, but rarely as anti-tumor agents. And with the availability of systemic therapies that have a deeper evidence base, uh, these agents really have been de-emphasized and their use as an active therapy to treat a progressing desmoid tumor should be limited. The first set of agents that we'll talk about that have some clear efficacy in desmoid tumors are cytotoxic chemotherapy. And these include methotrexate-based regimens, typically in combination with a vinca alkaloid, uh, pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, and anthracycline-based regimens, uh, largely using doxorubicin uh, in combination with decarbazine. And the indication for cytotoxic chemotherapy really should be unresectable and growing desmoid tumors, and even those that may be life-threatening. And we'll talk about some of the data that suggests that these agents are active. The largest case series looking at patients treated with methotrexate and vinblastine or venerelbine uh, included 75 patients um, who were treated for a median 
of uh, 14 months and followed uh, for 80 months. The median PFS in the group receiving primary treatment for their desmoid tumors uh, was 75 months, and it's important to note that not all patients were progress progressing at the time that they were treated. In those patients that were re-challenged on progression, and there were 11 of these patients, the median PFS was still over four years at 53 months, and the median treatment duration was one year. The previously discussed 75 patient series is the largest uh, series that's been reported in patients receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy, but on the slide that you see before you, uh, a number of smaller case series have been reported looking at several different regimens. None of these are randomized. All of these have been case series, and as Dr. Roland discussed in our previous module, uh, we know that desmoid tumors can regress spontaneously, and so interpretation of these data needs to be cautious, uh, given that some of these tumors may have responded on their own without intervention. Looking at the top of the chart, you'll see that patients who receive combination chemotherapy with doxorubicin and decarbazine do respond uh, to treatment, um, including several uh, complete responses noted in the approximately 19 patients who were treated. Doxyl, or pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, is also associated with responses, but there is a qualitative sense that some of these responses may not be quite as deep, with few complete responses noted in the approximately 16 patients treated in these two series. We briefly discussed some of the data for methotrexate-based uh, chemotherapy as well. Um, with over 100 patients treated in case series, uh, and a number of complete responses and partial responses seen. Given that there's no comparative studies looking at cytotoxic chemotherapy, we're limited um, to retrospective series and trying to make comparisons between the activity of these agents. A retrospective study conducted by the French Sargahoma Group described the experience of 62 patients treated with various cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens. 71% of patients received combinations either doxorubicin or methotrexate-based. 29% of patients received monotherapy, and 21% of patients received anthracycline-based combinations. The response rate was higher for patients who received anthracycline-based regimens at 54% versus 12%. And I think this is sort of what has supported us in the past in saying that if a patient requires therapy, in other words, if they have a desmoid tumor in a high-risk or life-threatening location, anthracycline-based chemotherapy, likely in combination, is probably the most likely cytotoxic chemotherapy to induce a response. Looking at more modern agents, tyrosine kinase inhibitors have also been studied extensively in this space. S several single-arm studies done both in the United States and Europe have evaluated the efficacy of imatinib in patients with desmoid fibromatosis. None of these have been randomized, and most have reported response rates less than 20%. I think this is important in the context of the uh, serafinib data that was uh, briefly discussed by Dr. Roland, which we will discuss deeper in a few slides, uh, where patients receiving placebo had a 20% response rate by resist. Newer tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, have been studied and are likely more effective in this disease. And importantly, this is where we start to get into agents that have randomized controlled clinical trial data to support their use. Um, and really, these agents now form the backbone of treatment for desmoid fibromatosis. This is the Kaplan-Meier curve that demonstrates the progression-free survival in patients receiving serafinib versus placebo in a randomized uh, clinical trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. Patients receiving serafinib had a median PFS that was not evaluable during the time in the study, whereas patients receiving placebo had an 11.3-month progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of progression or death of 0.13.
As was highlighted by Dr. Rowland in the previous session, one of the key contributions of this study was demonstrating that even patients receiving placebo for desmoid fibromatosis have a response rate, which in this study was 20%. Prior to this, this had been an anecdotal phenomenon that had been described in somewhere between 5 and 10% of patients, but this study really demonstrated that a sizable minority of patients who have desmoid fibromatosis may respond without any therapy. Another TKI, pazopinib, um, has also been studied, and in this study was randomized against patients uh, receiving methotrexate and vinblastine. The study was not powered to drive comparisons between the two groups, but it does give us an approximation of how patients with the inclusion criteria of this study would have responded to a different active chemotherapy regimen. 37% of patients receiving pazopinib had a uh, partial response compared with 25% of patients receiving methotrexate and vinblastine, which up until now really had been the standard cytotoxic chemotherapy regimen that was given outside of emergent life-threatening situations for patients with desmoids. The most recent class of agents that has been evaluated in desmoid tumors uh, with uh, increasing enthusiasm are the gamma secretase inhibitors. The interest in GSI stems from early phase clinical trials where serendipitous responses were noted in desmoid tumors, but there is a mechanistic rationale for the use of these agents in desmoid tumors because it's known that desmoid tumors highly express notch, the cleavage of which is blocked by GSIs. There are two gamma secretase inhibitors that are currently under active investigation for desmoid fibromatosis. The first is nirogasistat, for which the recent phase three studies have been reported and will be reviewed here. And the second is AL-102, which is currently in phase three studies as well. The DEFI study uh, was a phase three study of patients with progressing desmoid fibromatosis who were treated with either nirogasistat versus placebo. The eligibility criteria were resist progressing desmoid tumors within the last 12 months. That was a 20% increase in the maximal diameter of the tumor in the 12 months prior to randomization. Patients were treated with either nirogasistat, 150 milligrams twice daily, or placebo. And those patients who progressed with confirmed radiographic progression were allowed to transition to open-label nirogasistat. The primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival with several secondary endpoints, including objective response rate and patient-reported outcomes. The baseline demographics and characteristics of patients on the protocol are largely what you would expect for patients with desmoid fibromatosis. There was a two-to-one female predominance. Patients had both intra-abdominal and extra-abdominal tumors, and notably, both frontline and previously treated therapies were included in the study. Um, patients had received both prior systemic therapy and prior surgery and radiation. And here's the Kaplan-Meier curve that illustrates that nirogastat met its primary endpoint of improved progression-free survival relative to placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.29. The median uh, progression-free survival in patients receiving placebo was 15.1 months and was not reached in the nirogastat arm of the study. Looking at the pre-specified subgroup analysis, nirogasistat was associated with an, a PFS improvement across all pre-specified subgroups. That includes patients with sporadic as well as APC-mutated desmoid fibromatosis and patients who received prior chemotherapy and treatment with prior TKIs. The objective response rate for patients receiving nirogasistat was 41% in contrast with 8% in those patients who received placebo. The lower response rate to placebo likely stems from the inclusion criteria that 20% response that 20% progression within the prior 12 months, which is a stringent bar uh, to entry. Nirogastat notably was also associated with 
uh, 7% complete responses, none of which were seen in placebo. And the time to response was 5.6 months versus 11.1 months in patients receiving placebo. Looking at the waterfall plots, you can see that nirogasistat resulted in substantial reductions in the tumor size. Although even here in this highly selected group of patients, all of whom had 20% resist progression prior to enrollment, you can see that somewhere under half, of, just under half of patients uh, do seem to have shrinkage of their tumors with 8% of patients achieving a resist response without treatment. Importantly, this study also included a large battery of patient reported outcome um, instruments and showed that nirogastat significantly reduced patients' pain. Um, this is the brief pain inventory short form. Cycle 10 is circled because this is where the pre-specified time point for analysis was. However, you can see that the curves for pain separate at the first evaluation point, cycle two, and remain separated throughout treatment. This is the diagram that looks at desmoid tumor-specific symptom severity using a, a newly created goddess uh, desmoid tumor total symptom score. Uh, this is a PRO that was evaluated for the first time uh, in the Nyragasa-STAT study. And this is the goddess physical functioning impact score. And again, you can see that the curves separate early and remain separated through time, including at cycle 10, which is the pre-specified endpoint for analysis. Like all agents, that does have side effects. The most common treatment-related uh, adverse events were diarrhea and electrolyte abnormalities that likely stem from it, including hypophosphatemia, as well as skin findings, including rash. Treatment immersion adverse events led to dose reductions in approximately 42% of patients receiving nirogasistat. However, the vast majority of treatment-related adverse events were grade one or two, and most occurred in the first cycle of treatment. Ovarian dysfunction is a composite adverse event that associates several symptoms associated with female reproductive hormone levels. 27 out of 36 women of childbearing potential in nirogasistat study reported some form of ovarian dysfunction including irregular periods or menopausal symptoms. In the 11 patients who discontinued an stat for any reason, the ovarian dysfunction resolved. 14 patients who are currently ongoing on stat therapy, um, and of those, nine of them had re resolution of the ovarian dysfunction adverse event, and two patients are lost to follow-up, and their ovarian status is not known. The second gamma secretase inhibitor study, which we will briefly review, is the ringside phase 2 3 study of AL102. This is an oral gamma secretase inhibitor. In the first portion of the study, three separate regimens were tested um, to be brought forward into the phase 3 uh, double blind placebo controlled phase of the trial. The inclusion criteria for this study were slightly different in the regimen selection portion and not quite as stringent, with only 10% unidimensional growth in the prior 18 months or desmoid tumor-related pain. The baseline characteristics are what you would expect for desmoid fibromatosis and similar to the previous study. Similar to nirogasistat, AL102 is also generally well-tolerated uh, with mostly grade one and two adverse events with diarrhea, stomatitis, and skin changes being the most commonly seen side effects. Preliminary data from the dose finding phase of the study suggests that the, the agent is likely to be active with significant reductions in volume um, on patients receiving treatment at all doses.
An important finding that, made, that was noted in this preliminary analysis was that T2 changes on MRI seem to reflect a decrease in cellularity and are a leading indicator of patients who are likely to respond to therapy. And you can see here that the vast majority of patients on treatment had a reduction in T2 intensity uh, on subsequent MRIs. There are still key unanswered questions in systemic therapy. Uh, this ovarian dysfunction side effect was not expected as the phase three study was constructed, but was observed early on, likely due to the enrollment of a, a population of patients who are young and of childbearing age. And the long-term outlook on fertility is not yet known. It's encouraging that the patients um, who discontinued irrigate that seem to recover ovarian function, but we don't know if there are any long-term impacts on fertility. We also don't know about the durability of GSI responses. This is still a new agent of drugs, and off therapy, we will need to follow these patients to see if their tre treatment responses are durable in the same way as patients who received some of our older cytotoxic agents. We don't know the optimal duration of any systemic therapy in desmoid fibromatosis. You can see from our slides that the median duration of therapy for methotrexate in some of the older studies is, is greater than a year. In the serafinib study, there was no predetermined stopping point, and that was also true for pazopinib, nirogasistat, and AL-102. And for those patients who do discontinue therapy due to toxicity or for any other reason, do they respond to rechallenge on progression? And ultimately, these are going to be important questions to answer because none of these therapies are free of side effects, and patients are not looking to be on treatment uh, long-term if they don't need to be. So now that we've seen some of the updated data about uh, active surveillance, as well as some of the systemic therapies used to treat desmoid tumors, let's just briefly go over our initial approach to a patient with the newly diagnosed desmoid tumors. Oftentimes, uh, patients will present to our center with a newly uh, new diagnosis, having had a mass identified, and then they underwent a biopsy. Most times when patients present to our center, many patients will be under the assumption and sort of have the um, thinking that they're coming to meet with the surgeon in order to have the tumor removed. So much of what we do in our initial visit is talking about all of the available treatment options for desmoid tumors. Most times we will have patients see one of our surgical oncologists as well as at a minimum one of our medical oncologists. And then depending on the treatment disposition, uh, they will see some of the other members of our team, including radiation therapy um, or interventional radiology, depending on the treatment recommendation. At my initial visit with the patient, we will review the images of where the desmoid tumor is located and then talk in detail about what a surgical resection would require in order to remove the desmoid tumor. Although many times uh, we would recommend active surveillance, it's often helpful for patients to understand the complexity of the surgery and the amount of reconstruction and recovery that would be required as well as to know that up to 30% of the time, even if we do a good margin negative surgery, that their desmoid tumor might recur, it takes that conversation with the patient and the surgeon to really understand why surgery is not a good option most of the time as the first initial uh, treatment strategy. At the same time, they will also meet with one of our medical oncology colleagues, such as Dr. Rattan, and he will review sort of the uh, indications and the rationale for undergoing active surveillance um, from the medical oncologist's perspective. So, Dr. Rattan, what is your conversation usually like at that initial visit with a newly diagnosed desmoid patient? So there's a lot of education uh, that needs to take place uh, uh, for the patient to really understand what a desmoid tumor is. We, we, we start by highlighting that this is not a cancer that's likely to spread to other parts of a patient's body, that the vast majority of patients with desmoid tumors will have a normal life expectancy, and that the reason that the tumor needs to be monitored and managed is to minimize the effect on quality of life. And that really is the primary concern for the majority of patients 
which is different from most of the diseases that we treat in the sarcoma center. From there, the discussion often focuses on what the impact of the desmoid tumor is on that patient's life. Does it prevent them from taking part in activities that they wish they could otherwise take part in, or has this been an incidental finding? For those patients that don't have a high symptom burden, uh, we are very clear that it's very possible that they may never require therapy and that close observation for a period of time is generally what we're gonna recommend. For those patients that have significant functional deficits already, or for patients that have tumors in high risk locations, uh, the conversation can be different. And there we will talk more about uh, moving into therapy and trying to understand exactly what our acceptance of toxicity is going to be in order to uh, get the patient the benefit that they may need at that time. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think what this highlights is, you know, as we've shown in, in the videos up until now, you know, the treatment of desmoid tumors has really changed over the last five to 10 years. Getting treatment at a center that treats a high volume of desmoid tumors is really important because as you can see, over the last five to 10 years, the options really have changed. Oftentimes previously for a patient with say an abdominal wall desmoid tumor, I may have recommended surgery um, as the initial treatment modality. But as we've sort of learned about the natural history of desmoid tumors, the concept of spontaneous regression and the new medical therapies that have come around, including serafinib and uh, and nirogasistat and pizopanib, um, we really have changed our, our multimodality approach to these patients. And based on this, you know, it's really important for patients with desmoid tumors to have their care coordinated in a multidisciplinary manner where medical oncologists, surgical oncologists, radiation oncologists, um, and, you know, specialized radiologists and pathologists can really come up with a comprehensive plan uh, for each patient individually, depending on the symptoms that they developed and the location of their tumor, because all of these are very different and every patient is different. I think, I yeah. No, no, go ahead. I would point out that the, you know, the multidisciplinary conference also serves as an educational tool for us. This is a space that is moving so quickly in the last few years. And, you know, I've watched as the surgeons have changed the way that they think about these tumors. And certainly on the medical oncology side, we have as well. Um, the tumors that can be treated with cryoablation um, has also been a real moving target. For, for a, a long time, we couldn't treat tumors in certain locations because of damaging adjacent structures. And while that's, while that's still true, there's new techniques that are being developed all of the time. And so, you know, one of the things that I think that we can do at our center that a lot of places that don't see this kind of volume can't do um, is stay on top of this stuff and sort of get ongoing input from the physicians who provide each of these therapies uh, to make sure we're matching the right patient to the right technique at the right time. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think to round out this segment, we'll now hear from a desmoid tumor patient named Kate as she describes her journey with undergoing treatment for a desmoid tumor. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm from Michigan. I've been married for about 12 years and I have an eight-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter and I'm a desmoid tumor patient for the last two and a half years. I started off realizing I had a mass in my stomach uh, and very quickly saw my primary doctor after a series of tests, I had an ultrasound, a CT scan, um, a, a biopsy. I was referred to a general surgeon where I elected to have my tumor removed. Initially, the surgeon had recommended that we kind of do a watch and wait, but I am someone who likes to be in charge and, and the thought of having something growing inside me that wasn't supposed to be there just wasn't an option for me. So I did have my tumor removed in December of 2020, right at the height of the pandemic. Um, within a couple months though, it had grown back and 
Um, my general surgeon was very surprised by this and um, wanted to do a little bit more research and acknowledge that she was not a specialist in these tumors. Um, and so before she did any further treatment, she wanted to talk or do a little bit more research. So it was at that time my primary said, we've got to get you to the U University of Michigan. Um, while this is a benign tumor, it is still pretty rare. And so seeing a specialist is, is probably where we're at right now. I was so thankful um, that I was able to get into University of Michigan, the sarcoma specialist, within uh, about a month. And, um, and we learned so much more about desmoid tumors than I had initially from any, any care that I had gotten, um, and, and lots of resources from uh, the Desmo Tumor Research Foundation, support groups, rarediseases.org. Um, so that was really, uh, really important. Um, we discussed a wide range at that, uh, that very first appointment, a wide range of options from um, chemotherapy, radiation, um, cryoblasion, uh, another resection, resection of, the, of the tumor, um, oral targeted therapy. And so at that point though, we couldn't really make a decision because um, I hadn't had an MRI to get a baseline. And I learned because she's the specialist that an MRI really is the best um, image, image to, to monitor desmoid tumors. Um, I was fortunate though, I got into my MRI within about another month and I learned, because um, my, my oncologist actually called me and said, your, your tumor is bigger than what it was before you had your tumor removed. And, and so we need to start you on um, oral, an oral targeted therapy would be her recommendation. Um, because we were still looking at cryoablation as well, she also at that time made the referral for cryo, uh, um, an interventionalist radiologist. So I could kind of start my oral therapy and then also still kind of see what cryotherapy was about. I did learn though with my second MRI that my tumor had actually grown even more and so that cryoablation was not an option. Um, so I've been on the oral therapy or the oral targeted um, therapy for about a year and a half now. I'll be done in May, I'm very excited about that. Um, and I'm happy to say that after being on this medication, while I was on a, a bigger dose initially and now I've got, I did get it reduced to a smaller dose due to side effects, um, I did, um, I have had shrinkage in my tumor. So that was very exciting news I learned this summer. Um, and so my next MRI is in March and so we'll see where we go from there. What I think physicians should do or oncologists should do that are talking with patients. Well, first, I think a if you are a primary physician and you see a desmoid tumor, because of how rare they are, the recommendation to a specialist, I think it should be automatic. Um, I'm not saying that I would have made a different decision. I think that if I would have met with my oncologist first, I probably would have still elected to have the tumor removed um, in the first place. But someone else might have chosen differently if they would have had you know, the oncologist firsthand. The other thing I think um, is once we're, you're working with an oncologist or once you're working with a, a desmoid tumor patient, again, explaining to them how to have the conversations with families of what it really is, um, the definitions of cancer and why it doesn't meet cancer, but also why it doesn't meet benign and that it's a very great, great area and maybe some uh, terminology of how they could explain it to a, to a family or their loved ones. 
Connecting patients with support groups are really important. I've met people through social media platforms really, but from all over the country and world even with, through the Desmoid Tumor Research Foundation for, um, through support, for support groups and supporting each other through this kind of bizarre journey that not very many people get to experience. So um, connecting the patients from across the globe has been really interesting and, and um, cool for me. I mean, because we're such a small community, we need to let others know that they're not alone. And, and um, it's because of the online platforms that are available to us that I haven't felt as alone. Um, and so that's been really fortunate. The last thing I would recommend for oncologists in particular is to explain all the treatment options. I'm fortunate that I've had that, but I know that not everyone does. Um, and so I think being able to look at the, the range of options that are available. I know at University of Michigan, I was brought to the tumor board several different times. So there are lots of people looking at my scans and talking about my tumor and um, and that was reassuring to me. Um, and so the interdisciplinary approach and having multiple um, physicians looking at my scans was also really important to me as well. Okay. So the first case that we're going to discuss is a 66-year-old man with progressing desmoid. So this gentleman presented to an outside facility 18 months uh, prior to seeing us with vague abdominal symptoms. A CT imaging demonstrated a jejunal perforation and an abscess with an associated mass. He underwent percutaneous drainage of the abscess and was treated with antibiotics at the outside facility. There is a, a, a mass associated with uh, air and fluid likely consistent with the patient's known perforation. And on the right, six weeks after presentation, you can see the patient has a drain in place. The fluid collection has resolved, um, though he continues to have uh, some inflammation and likely a mass at that location. Dr. Roland, do you want to take us through the surgical considerations that might present themselves in a case like this? Sure, thanks very much. Um, unfortunately, this is a scenario that happens sometimes for patients with desmoid tumors and also with other types of intra-abdominal uh, sarcomas most commonly. As Dr. Rattan described, you can see in the scan on the left, the air fluid levels and the associated loops of bowel. Uh, we are often consulted in order to consider resecting all of this um, at the time that this happens. But the challenge with this is, as you can see in the scan, there's a lot of associated inflammation, um, a lot of loops of small bowel that are sort of uh, stuck within this uh, large area of perforation now. And oftentimes for these types of things, it's not safe to do a large bowel resection and then put the patient back in continuity with doing an anastomosis because the risk of developing an anastomotic leak or a stricture in the future is very high. And so oftentimes with these patients, we will try um, as was done in this case to do things like antibiotics and, e and even uh, percutaneous drains in order to decrease the amount of inflammation in that area. And as you can see on the right, the remaining mass is much smaller than the area of localized perforation in the scan. And if you did have to do surgery at this point, you know, the amount of bowel and the complexity of the surgery would be um, significantly less than if you had tried to go in and operate at, uh, at the initial presentation. Sometimes, though, patients just will not get better after local, um, local conservative measures, as was done in this case. And other things to consider when you're trying to manage this patient is 
that if there was, say, um, if you did end up needing to go to the operating room to try to address the perforation, sometimes things like a small bowel bypass in order to just bypass the area of the desmoid tumor and the inflammation in order to allow all of that to resolve um, is something that can be considered rather than trying to resect all of that at the same time, because you would be concerned if you take out too much small intestine, the patient can develop short gut syndrome and not be able to digest and um, require, um, you know, total parenteral nutrition sometimes for long periods of time. And so really addressing not necessarily the desmoid at the time of the initial operation, but the complication that has arisen either by bypassing the area or something like that and getting the patient over the initial initial complication then can allow them to undergo whatever additional treatment you need to go in the future. The other thing that I tell my patients is, you know, just because we're saying sur not surgery is not now doesn't mean it's never something that we can consider in the future. And so revisiting this as we sort of see how the disease course goes, um, you know, can help to sort of manage as the patient would want to get rid of the drain and stuff in the future. And so those are the main surgical considerations we think about when we have patients that develop intra-abdominal complications from uh, desmoid tumors. Back to you. Great. Thanks. So in this case, um, after that initial conservative management, given that he'd improved the patient proceeded to surgery at that outside facility, and pathology demonstrated two masses consistent with desmoid fibromatosis. He was subsequently followed in six months after surgery, a new enlarging mass was noted in his left flank. Uh, the patient was started on Sullendac by his treating team, and over the following 10 months, the mass continued to enlarge to approximately eight centimeters in size. And so looking at this, you can see that new mass um, eight months after the initial presentation or six months after surgery on the left, uh, which continues to grow quite substantially over the following six months, so that 14 months after his initial presentation, he has an eight centimeter uh, mass no located um, in the right flank. Now, uh, Dr. Roland, did you want to comment about sort of surgery for something like this? Sure. Yeah, I think this case is interesting. One, um, you know, as was noted in the initial presentation, you know, desmoid tumors can um, sometimes be multifocal. This case is a little bit unique in that often the multifocality, as was seen in the initial operation where the patient had, you know, multiple desmoids within the small bowel mesentery is a relatively common presentation. You know, a, a desmoid tumor associating sort of in a separate compartment is a little bit unique, but not, um, you know, not something that's totally unheard of. From a surgical standpoint, you know, although, you know, this is technically resectable, you know, we use it meaning that, you know, he could, um, all of that back musculature could be removed, you know, the amount of uh, core stability, you know, if we do surgery for these masses, we like to take at least, you know, one to two centimeter margin at a minimum which would end up involving taking out some of the lateral abdominal wall musculature, the transversalis muscle in the back, you know, almost all the way up to the psoas intra-abdominally. And that can result in significant um, core weakness after this, because all of that would have to be sort of reconstructed with the large mesh or plastic surgery reconstruction. So although, although the mass is technically removable and all of that musculature could be resected, the long-term uh, morbidity and long-term change in his quality of life related to the amount of you know, muscle that would have to be resected makes you want to think about if there are other ways that you could potentially treat this to begin with in order to preserve his quality of life for as long as possible. Great. 
So in this case, the patient uh, relocated from his, uh, his previous facility and was seen in our clinic to establish care. And you know, he said that he was aware of this mass, he felt it when he was sitting, but it didn't cause him any pain, didn't cause him any functional limitations or discomfort. And notably, he also said that he felt that while he'd been aware that this mass had been growing for several months, he felt like over the last few weeks it had been bothering him a little bit less. And the initial CT that we did at our facility, which is on the right of this panel, uh, was read as stable disease relative to his prior scan, but looking at it, the tumor does in fact perhaps look even a little bit smaller than it did before. So given the previous progression that we had seen on treatment, uh, we did discuss medical therapy options, including serafinib with the patient. Um, given that he was minimally symptomatic and had a tumor that was not in a location that was likely to be immediately life-threatening, we also discussed treatment on a gamma-secretase inhibitor study that randomized patients to placebo. But he had minimal symptoms, and given that the tumor had been stable over the prior three months, uh, we dispositioned him to active surveillance. And over the following months, we watched this tumor slowly regress. So that from the baseline in our center, which I just showed you in the left panel, three months later and nine months after that, you can see the tumor uh, continued to shrink without any intervention. Notably, the patient had stopped taking Selendac uh, prior to seeing us the first time. So this is without any treatment for his desmoid tumor. Really interesting. <laughs> And I think it's important to note that this is something that is seen. Uh, many, of us have, many of us who have taken care of desmoid tumors for a long time were accustomed to intervening on these early and often didn't give time for these kinds of responses to happen. And I think um, looking at the responses that were seen in that placebo arm from that 2018 uh, serafinib versus placebo study has given us some of the confidence that we need to say that, yes, this actually can happen in a sizable number of patients. And so um, you know, to me, the, the message of cases like this is that for patients that are not bothered by their tumors, there's seldom going to be a reason to treat unless you're concerned about a pending anatomical complication. And the reason that I included the, the figure on the right is that the Nyragasistat study was a highly selected group of patients. So for serapid versus placebo, there was, there was several inclusion criteria. Progression, 10% in the previous six months was one, but it was also simply patients who had pain or who were not candidates for surgery. For the Nyragasistat study, it was a more stringent arm, 20% resist progression in the prior 12 months, but even there, you can see that a sizable number of patients have stability or shrinkage of their tumors without intervention. Driving home that active surveillance for an asymptomatic patient, unless you're concerned about a complication, is likely to be in their best interest. In the Italian prospective observational study that was previously covered by Dr. Rowland, even patients who progressed could demonstrate regression all the way down to a complete response in several of the cases that were noted in the study. So since uh, the patient uh, established care with us, he's continued on surveillance. Um, his tumors continued to regress and he remains in good health. You know, notably, he did have multifocal disease and he was screened for familial adenomatous polyposis because we do know that that is a disease that uh, predisposes to desmoids, um, but was found to be negative. And he's also had a colonoscopy, which was unremarkable. So I think key points here are that a patient with progressing desmoid fibromatosis may spontaneously stabilize and regress. And so for patients that do not have symptoms and don't have a high risk of an anatomical complication, uh, surveillance really should be undertaken, even in the setting of tumor growth. And the international consensus statement by the Desmoid Tumor Working Group recommends progression at three time points on surveillance when clinically feasible uh, to ensure that you are not unnecessarily treating a patient that does not require it. Our second case is a 55-year-old woman with a history of familial adenomatous polyposis who was status post a prophylactic colectomy five years prior. 
She was referred to our clinic after a screening baseline CT that was done to evaluate for desmoid fibromatosis, demonstrated ill-defined mesenteric changes that were concerning uh, for possible desmoid. Screening CTs are not necessarily standard for patients with FAP. However, it is known that there are certain specific APC mutations that are at higher risk for the development of FAP, and patients with FAP that have a family history of developing desmoids may warrant screening CT scans. Christy, any thoughts on the uh, role of prophylactic colectomy and how that factors into the formation of desmoids? Sure. So, um, you know, the treatment for FAP includes um, total proctocolectomy, which means patients uh, will have removal of their entire colon uh, and then with an anastomosis between their small bowel and sort of their um, their their rectal stump. Uh, as was demonstrated in this case, um, you know, most patients that have FAP associated desmoids, they're most often found sort of either in the abdominal wall of their incision or within the mesentery of the small bowel. The challenge with these cases is, you know, as the colon has already been removed, you know, all of their uh, nutrient and water absorption is done by the small intestine. And so additional bowel resection in these cases is particularly challenging because they have sort of the minimum amount of required bowel in order to survive, you know, on enteral nutrition. And so these FAP associated desmoids can be um, particularly challenging. And so looking at her initial CT scan, you can see several areas of um, ill-defined changes in the mesentery that very well may be consistent with desmoid fibromatosis. Given that the patient was new to our clinic and that these changes may have been longstanding, given that she hadn't had prior imaging since her colectomy, uh, she was dispositioned to active surveillance. And she returned to our clinic three months later with a new CAT scan, which demonstrated progression. So here on the left side, you can see the, the initial baseline panel that demonstrates an area of mesenteric nodularity, which three months later had substantially increased in size. Dr. Roland, do you have anything to say about local management in this context? Yeah, I think, um, so thanks for that. I think, you know, this is where these FAP-associated desmoids tend to be particularly challenging. As you showed on the initial scan, there was sort of this one area of nodularity, but then on the, uh, throughout the mesentery, really, there was, um, you know, sort of some of these changes that were were particularly concerning. As demonstrated here, you know, the amount of bowel, it's, it's not the bowel itself that's the problem, but when you take all of that mesentery, the bowel associated with that mesentery can't survive because there isn't enough blood supply to that. And so what ends up happening is, um, as, I, as I mentioned, this patient would be at very high risk for developing short gut syndrome, which is um, you know, very challenging to manage and often a, a lifelong uh, TPN requirement after that. And so certainly surgery as the primary treatment modality for patients with FAP really should only be done in the situation of where there are complications that can't be managed otherwise, but we would be very hesitant to operate on somebody with a diagnosis of FAP with a mesenteric desmoid uh, because of all the long-term implications of that. So given this patient's uh, rapid and unexpected growth, uh, we did obtain a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis of desmoid fibromatosis. We were concerned about uh, the possibility of a different malignancy. And uh, you can see that in the one month that it took to get the biopsy and the results, the tumor continued to grow substantially um, from three to four months on active surveillance. 
And so this is a case where we were very concerned about the rapid growth of this tumor. The patient was beginning to have symptoms, and we were concerned about bowel obstruction and other anatomical complications. And so we went back to our menu of options and looked at cytotoxic chemotherapy as the likely next step. For patients who are at risk of a life-threatening complication, for whom um, a, a, a reliable response is desired, uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy likely still has a role. So looking at some of the agents that we typically use uh, in terms of systemic therapy for desmoid tumors, imatinib with a response rate between 6 and 20%, I think it's highly questionable whether this is an active agent in this disease. Serafinib and pazopinib uh, both have randomized data to support their use. You want to be careful in comparing response rates because these are all different populations of patients, um, but these do seem to be pretty active agents. And then finally, methotrexate and anthracycline-based therapies are also active as well, with anthracycline-based therapies having response rates from 37 to 54%, depending on the retrospective series uh, that you look at. So we want to be careful when we're making these kinds of cross-trial comparisons, but in some cases, they're all we have. It's also important to mention that the GSIs could also be considered uh, in a setting like this. It's notable that these agents are active in patients that have APC mutations. Uh, and do seem to have a high rate of response, but they're not currently available off a clinical trial. So options that we presented to the patient at the time that she had progression included serafinib and anthracycline-based chemotherapy. We ruled out placebo-controlled randomized trials given the rate of progression of this patient's tumor, and she opted to move forward uh, with cytotoxic chemotherapy. So you can see the treatment baseline. Um, and by cycle two, she has stabilization of her disease. So you, you'll recall that she was rapidly progressing prior to therapy, uh, even with a significant difference between cycle three, or sorry, between three months and four months on surveillance. Uh, but by cycle two, she had stabilized. And by cycle four, you can see a substantial reduction in the size of her pelvic tumor. And by cycle six, that, con that response continued. And notably, the shrinkage continued for many months after therapy. And this is something that we often see with desmoid tumors, tumors that are previously growing and then stabilize and even begin to shrink, may continue to shrink for months or even years after therapy is discontinued. And so in this case, that's what we saw. And at 18 months, you can see that her uh, nodularity in the mesentery is similar to what she started with uh, prior to progressing on active surveillance. For patients with minimal symptoms or low-risk locations, selection of treatment should emphasize minimization of toxicity. And that's why this patient was initially dispositioned to active surveillance. But in the setting of rapid progression at a location that's likely to either become symptomatic or already is, cytotoxic chemotherapy can still have a role. The future role of the GSIs in high urgency scenarios like this is undefined. Uh, it's important to note that Nyrogastat does seem to have a fairly rapid uh, onset of treatment with a um, time to treatment response of 5.6 months um, and a response rate of 41%. That's in contrast to the nine months that it takes to respond to some of the other TKIs like serafinib. At the time that this patient was treated, there was um, no availability of these agents off of a clinical trial, and so cytotoxic chemotherapy was selected. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YNZ860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from SpringWorks Therapeutics, Incorporated.